Welcome to Nomina's Mental Health Mavens. I'm your host, Joanne, and every Sunday we bring you mental health and addictions experts on a variety of topics, including advanced evidence-based therapies. Now, guest opinions are their own and some content may be triggering, but our mission here and on our Nomina Wellness YouTube channel is to make exceptional mental health support accessible to everyone. So make sure to subscribe, give us that good rating, and maybe even share with a friend. So let's get to it. This week on Mental Health Mavens, we are talking about military sexual trauma or military sexual misconduct. And to talk about this important topic, we are bringing in Lisa Kalko, who is not only our clinical director with Nomina, but she is also a retired Canadian Armed Forces veteran. And she has a wealth of experience on this topic. So with that, let's welcome Lisa. I didn't know, I had to ask you, what is MST? And then you had told me it's military sexual trauma. So I ended up Googling and doing a lot of research about it, but you're probably a better person to tell us what is military sexual trauma? Yeah. So, I mean, military sexual trauma is an umbrella term, if you will, that's commonly used to describe people who have been active military participants who've experienced some sort of sexualized Um, violence or just even sexual assault, sexual discrimination, sexual harassment, a lot of different, a lot of different components to their experience of, you know, sexual inappropriate behavior or sexual misconduct. It is a term that's actually been coined in the US. It's not necessarily a term commonly used in Canada yet. However, it is something that we've been adopting the US definition here as more of an umbrella term to encompass our own service members who have experienced it. Generally speaking, it is not a diagnosable condition. So when you're working with a healthcare professional or something else, um, when referring to military sexual trauma, it is not a DSM diagnosis. It's not something that you'll find, um, you know, easily pinpointed of like, yes, this is the trauma. Um, But it is something that refers to more a term that describes the psychological, physical, physical, and or social impacts that happen from experiencing sexual trauma and or even being witness to it within a military context. So it is very specific to military members, but not necessarily only those who actively serve. Our civilian populations and other supports can be traumatized by even, you know, experiencing sexual trauma and or, you know, sexual violence or other misconduct within a military framework. So I don't want to think that it's only for those who have served, but rather even for those who have been a part of military communities, they're still subjected to, you know, sexual misconduct and inappropriate behaviors. When we're looking at that, it is important to know that there are kind of three distinct categories within the military sexual trauma umbrella. And so one of those being sexual assault, then we have sexualized behavior, and then lastly, discriminatory behavior that's often of a sexual nature. Okay, because I've heard the term military sexual misconduct versus military sexual trauma. So military sexual misconduct is defined in Canada as conduct of a sexual nature that can cause harm to others and usually takes place within the military context of the Department of Defense. So it can affect both military members as well as civilians, but is oftentimes within that construct of, you know, Department of Defense um, and its behaviors or actions within that definition. So one of the things I do want to help us also define when we're looking at military sexual trauma, it doesn't need to just be something traumatic that has happened to us. In fact, there is a difference between 
military sexual misconduct and military sexual trauma. So military sexual misconduct is defined, at least in Canada, as a conduct sexual in nature that takes place, can cause harm to others. And it usually takes place within the context of the Department of Defense. So, you know, whether you're working at a government headquarters or even within a military environment on a base or garrison, both could qualify. Um, and it means misconduct could be traumatic. It's not to say it's one or the other, but rather they can oftentimes be interrelated. But the other part to know about that is military sexual misconduct can also occur outside of your physical work environment. So when we're looking at that, it could be greater work-related spaces, other activities. If you and your group of crew or your group of people go out to a restaurant or you're going out to a place and you're still considered to be on duty, very similar to even being within the harassment policies, if you're in a work relationship and that work relationship is understood to exist and it does become sexual in nature, I want you to know that that could also qualify as sexual misconduct. And it is something that could be, you know, still relating and or leaving you traumatized. So just to kind of frame that and understand that, you know, many people will kind of, oh, well, I was off base or I was over here or if it was a mess function or I was at a friend's house on, you know, in the, the PMQs or something it could still qualify as, you know, a military sexual misconduct case and or inappropriate and or leave you traumatized. So it doesn't just need to be in your workplace in order for it to happen. It doesn't just need to be on deployment in order for it to happen. There's a lot of ways of which sexual misconduct can occur. And there's a lot of ways it can be traumatizing. What are some of the ways that it can be traumatizing? So we're looking at the overall kind of effects of experiencing that type of misconduct, it can become traumatizing to us if we don't feel like our psyche can handle it. For many of us, it can lead to mental health problems. We can have reduced sleep. We can have kind of impaired functioning. We can have, you know, poor memory, poor recall. Um, We can just be generally disoriented. We can lack motivation to get up and go to work. Over a prolonged period of time, these things can, you know, start to relate to physical injuries. So we can start to notice we might have headaches, we might have fatigue, we might have, you know, troubles with sexual arousal. Um, You know, that can be very traumatizing for us if we don't feel safe, if we don't feel like we can go back to our workplace and show up as the fully authentic human beings we want to be, because we're constantly in this feared state of, is my boss going to hit on me? Is somebody going to make a joke that's inappropriate? I've worked with a lot of people and experienced myself where, We're talking about pornography in the workspace. We're talking about, you know, rape culture and just really in a minimizing way. And if you're a survivor of that type of experience, it's devastating. And that can be very traumatizing, even if it's not directed at me. So that's where it becomes also really tricky when we're trying to define that because people can think, oh, well, I wasn't talking about her. It shouldn't be her problem. But you don't know what my experience has been. And that's all the more reason these types of things can be traumatizing for us. Looking at that, you know, it can also impair our relationships, you know, so do we feel safe actually, you know, having a relationship when with the military, we eat, sleep, breathe, exist, coexist with a lot of our peers. And we do see there can be a lot of military relationships that form, whether it be sexual, intimate, close friendships, or in other varieties. 
mm, maybe I don't feel like being as close to these people anymore. Maybe I feel like pulling back. Now all of a sudden I start to experience social isolation. Maybe I, you know, start to remove and distance myself from my partner because I don't want them to know about this horrible thing that's happened to me. Or maybe I feel a lot of guilt that one of my superiors might have come on to me. And now all of a sudden, I don't know how to present that to my intimate partner because I don't want them to think that I invited it or asked for it, which exists in all, maybe not all, exists in many, you know, kind of cultures, even within, you know, Canada itself. A lot of people have that victim, um, a survivor's guilt rather, in that space of, did I invite this? Did I do something? Is this my fault? You know, should I have not worn a skirt or not been so, you know, friendly? Should I have, you know, been more protective of my body? But really, it's something that we see even more commonly in the military because we are there with an understanding that we have this greater ethos, this greater collective values. We're all trained to do a job. These are the, you know, brother and sisters who are supposed to be there to protect me. And what happens when they can't? It makes it even more destabilizing for us in terms of that psychological component. And then we also notice, you know, that it can have career impacts. If I'm not, you know, being really friendly with my superior, if I'm starting to reject their sexual advances, how do I navigate those things? In principle, it's really easy. Of course, I wouldn't sleep with my boss, but we're finding that more and more that coercion of power, you know, especially amongst minority and other young women, when such as myself, when I joined the military, I was a young woman trying to navigate those power imbalances. And, you know, how do we reconcile those parts becomes really problematic. It also becomes so guilt inducing for us because it's like, what did I get this promotion? Because, you know, they needed to have more female representation or, you know, did I work hard enough or how do I bridge this gap or what happened over here? And I will tell you, even from my own experiences, when, you know, in particular, one of them, there was such backlash from the peer groups that we thought would be there to support us. That became part of the the long lasting, you know, the sting about it, which was they were attacking us for having experienced, you know, sexual misconduct. So the peer group of which is there that's supposed to understand and be really informed and they, they were not. And I'll tell you, that makes, at least from my experience as a woman, it makes us so much less likely to want to bring that forward later. Yeah, we had talked off camera about the stats and that it's actually more prevalent. And and I I was married to a police officer and I heard him and his, his buddies, his fellow police officers talking about what they call PWs, the police women and how they talked about them horrified me. Just the culture, even within their own society um, and how they thought of, of the women that, that worked side by side with them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting because, you know, when we look at the stats, you know, it, it is about one in four women in the CAF will experience a sexual assault or at least a military sexual trauma. In comparison to the average civilian population, it's about one in five. We also know it disproportionately favors those of minority groups because they have even less of a voice. They're less, you know, um, in a space where they actually feel like they can communicate or understand what is happening, which is, is really quite problematic. When I think about that, that's just about the reported sexual misbehaviors or sexual misconduct. That's not even accounting for the scores of women, minorities, and LGBTQ community members who have also experienced that 
and have never felt safe to disclose. I've worked with lots of men who have said like, oh, you know, this person grabbed me and, you know, or they were making all kinds of, you know, locker room jokes about my, you know, about my penis or about my, my butt or about, you know, my, my pecs or about my breasts, you know, especially men who might suffer with gynecomastia. Um, you know, they, those are still sexual inferences or sexualized jokes, sexualized culture that's wildly inappropriate, but they don't, accept or they don't realize that that's not acceptable behavior. And that's really quite problematic when we think about it. So just even looking at, we have a higher rate and that's just based on reporting. Now imagine the number of people have experienced this who have not reported it because the military culture doesn't really create a safe haven for reporting. Even in the last, I'll say kind of five, six years of my career, when I was experiencing and trying to advocate for up on our concerns it was something that was really frowned upon. It was not understood. It was really problematic. Um, there was a lot of joking, things like that around it, just even, you know, when trying to teach up on her, it was very minimized. It was very kind of misunderstood. I think it was a great initiative, but when we're looking at a culture that's trying to help change military sexual trauma, it was really, really problematic on so many levels, which meant that those who had experienced it would be even more reluctant to say anything, which is heartbreaking because there's a whole group of people who are just struggling to be in, struggling to make a change, wanting to do their best. They're inherently wanting to do well and not really being supported to do so. Well, I know too, from my own experience, uh, the more that I know about the signs and symptoms, because I'm the girl that's going to push it all down and carry on and it's okay. And I'll get through this. And, um, then all of a sudden I'll look at, at the signs and symptoms and realize, oh, <laughs> I'm not doing so good. Uh, so where can someone go for help now in Canada? What can we do? Well, and so there's a lot of change happening. And I mean, I don't want to make it sound all doom and gloom because truthfully, I know it's I know that the military is is really trying to make a difference. And I, I don't want to misrepresent the deep, caring, concerned people who are joining the military trying to do their best. As I said earlier, you know, so many people are going to the military because they see this culture, this helping protective space of really generous compassion. And I've, I've yet to meet somebody who joins the military being like, hmm, I'm pretty indifferent about it. You probably won't make it through basic training if you're pretty indifferent about it. Oftentimes, there are people who join for various reasons, whether it be the stability, the pension, the paycheck, the, the social support, the camaraderie, the hard challenges, the cool guns, the flying planes, you know, the whatever your motivation is. Sometimes they want to defend their country, be a part of something bigger, get an education. I know I've done a great job with, you know, just taking all of the great education offered. And there's so many beautiful reasons and it can be a beautiful place of support. So I most certainly don't want to present a singularly skewed perspective. But equally alongside that is there still is a lot of innate privilege and privilege within, you know, that part of the military culture that favors, you know, certain people. <clears throat> and so when we're accessing support, the military has really done or tried to do, a, you know, a, a job to help bring information. So they do have the Military Sexual Response Center. And, you know, the Military Sexual Response Center, they have two phone numbers. I'll give you the 1-800 number, which is 1-844-750-1648. And it's really designed for Canadian Armed Forces members who may have experienced sexual misconduct. They're there, they offer and connect with other counseling supports, other resources. They do take the information. Anyone who has experienced sexual misconduct throughout their career is encouraged, invited, and, you know, able to 
call that center. They're manned 24 seven. Um, will they have support 24 seven and just people there who are trained to try and help you in the immediacy and, or, you know, even if it's a historic event equally, you know, there are other kind of Canadian armed forces in, or the member assistance program, um, you know, there's a sexual misconduct support resources. You can Google a lot of these things just to find out. And more recently, there used to be a group called It's Just 700 that has now closed down. Um, but there's another group that's come about, which is It's Not Just 20K. And these peer support groups, you know, Veterans Affairs is working on getting funding for peer support groups as well, are all stemming from the incredible efforts that are being made to try and support and bring attention to this issue. One of the most important things I can tell anyone who has experienced sexual misconduct is you're not alone and it's not your fault. That's one of the hardest messages because as a woman in the calf, and I, like I said, I experienced this myself. It's like, what did you do? Did you leave them on? What were you wearing? Why were you at the mask? What did you do there? Did you say something? It's like, no, I just showed up. I'm sorry that my vulva was so attractive that somebody couldn't keep their hands, even though it's in no way exposed. But it's just that piece of, it's not your fault. You know, there's nothing that we do or don't do that should be enticing military sexual misconduct. One of the greatest things we can do is really normalize the fact that it's not okay, period. It's not a joke. It's not funny. It's not appropriate. It's not anything we should be talking about in terms of in a mass or any else, unless with a sincere and genuine curiosity to help the humans who have experienced it. Yeah, I am so glad that we have been making progress. I know we're not 100% there. So I'm going to link all of the resources in the description and on the show notes in the podcast. I'm also going to link the uh, objectification theory talk that uh, we did with Dan too, I love what Nomina is doing with feminism. I mean, your your husband is a very outspoken as male feminist, which is is great. <laughs> and I mean, and not to steal his self-disclosure, but I mean, he's another, you know, beautiful example of somebody who is there championing the cause. And not because he's married to me and because I'm such a feminist, but more so because he's also somebody who, as a male, has experienced that military sexual misconduct and having, you know, and being a part of that and having experienced that, it's about trying to raise the bar. I know that the humans who are joining the CAF genuinely want to make a change and be different. And the only way we're going to be able to do that is by really, like I said, raising that bar and starting to say that this is not okay. We're not going to be trivial about it. We're not going to minimize it. We're going to take this very seriously. And even if we don't understand, we're still going to uphold it as if it is one of the most important tenets and values we can. I mean, you have done a lot of work in, and research on sexual trauma and you're a member or you're, you were a past member of the military. So why, why have you chosen to focus in this particular area? You know, the, the brief backstory of personal disclosure is I joined the army in the nineties, you know, um, it was, I mean, I was a young teenager then and I really didn't know, I didn't know a lot um, I didn't know a lot about the culture. I just knew where I was growing up wasn't great. And this is an opportunity for me to have a different point of connection, different resourcing. I thought it was, you know, just this brilliant opportunity to find my people or people who could help keep me safe. And I think that's a really common motive for a lot of women who choose to join the military. It's something where it's a great opportunity. It's exciting. There's income stability. There's a lot of resources, which as a feminist don't necessarily exist in other you know, occupations or spheres. And it was under this auspice that I could just be uniquely equal. 
of course, I didn't understand then what I understand now. But having navigated that, it has been something that's been a focal point of a lot of my education and research. So when I did my history degree, I actually focused on understanding, you know, the differences of power imbalances and genocide and, you know, like wartime cultures and how women participate in war. Really, again, looking at that military participation, really curious about what are women, you know, doing in these various scopes and various militaries. I did my women's studies, you know, thesis on looking at, you know, again, women in the forces, how do we start to create more of a gendered balance? You know, how do we close that gender gap? That's when I really started to see that there was that power imbalance. There were these inherent differences and being equal wasn't necessarily equitable. So that became a bit more of a conversation. And I actually was looking at the differences across sex, gender and sexuality, and really trying to make sense of my own experiences of trauma in the military. I still so wanted to be a part of the military culture, but I wanted to change it from within. I was like, yeah, I get it. I've lived through it. I've survived this. I'm going to do great things. Little did I know. So I then kind of took my commission. I went from the ranks, took my commission, thought, okay, it's going to be great. I'm not going to experience sexual trauma there. Probably far worse, which was even more surprising because it was so much more normalized in a way. And that was really, really destabilizing having navigated that, you know, experiencing that, thinking that like, this is just something that we're going to be changing. And what I found is the culture was a lot different. The sexual violence and the sexual assaults, the sexual discrimination, all of those policies just was very differently veiled, very differently understood, very differently kind of nuanced. So that led me to wanting to work with doing, you know, I did a bachelor's in social work, studying again, you know, looking at sexual assaults, looking at, you know, practices, um, international social work practices. Again, when I did my master's in social work, focusing again on international social work, wanting to figure out how do we use women and have them be an active part of the conversation to try and help defer and change the conversation around sexual assault, sexual violence, you know, and really just understanding, you know, women's roles in the military. We have such a unique place within society and even within the military where we can shape and shift conversations around at the table around things like, you know, various redevelopment aids, various community-based needs. You know, what, do, what is the experience like for a woman? It is very different. Well, then that, you know, again, kind of led to different parts um, my master's in psychology actually focused on understanding the alternative perspective. So I actually looked at trauma, PTSD, and sexual response cycles, sexual you know templates. How did those things interact and interrelate? Understanding that within a family dynamic. And so then finally, even looking at you know getting towards my PhD research, I was at that point close to the end of my military career and really wanting to focus on reconciling that trauma, reconciling that experience. It was right around the time the Duchamp report was coming out. Um, you know, we had just kind of created this whole op honor culture. Things were very different. This was really before MST became defined as a term, although it's really more common in the U.S. than it is in Canada. Um, and MST meaning military sexual trauma. So understanding that any sort of discrimination, sexual violence, you know, sexual interactions, as they're kind of understood, you know, discriminatory sexual behavior, how that became layered and nuanced within the military context. And I really just thought like, wow, this is something that is so missed. And yet I was still experiencing it even towards the end trajectory of my career. And I offer this not in a way to say that I think the people who were implicitly participating in it were necessarily bad people. In fact, I think they just had such a blind spot because they were so privileged that they didn't realize the way they were participating in normalizing or agreeing with 
discriminatory sexual cultures that didn't really create a space for women at the table. So ultimately that led to me having to make a choice to say, hey, you know, I'm either going to do something that's going to help me be well or something that's going to keep me in this system. And the system wasn't helping me be well. And not because the system is bad or that is, you know, uh, I don't blame the system. I don't think it's a horrible system, but I do think it is a system that does perpetuate a culture that privileges people who are already existing within it. And the way to shift that is to start to change that, that dynamic. All right. Well, anything that you want to say in closing? The, the, the interesting statistic around, you know, over a 12 month period, 70% of men, 75% of women, and about 76% of the LGBTQ population experienced, witnessed, and or had some sort of, they witnessed or experienced some sort of sexualized or discriminatory behaviors. It is alarming when you think about it. It is alarming. Three quarters of our military population in varying phases have experienced or witnessed sexual misconduct. So when I think about that, and I think about the number of people who are just not saying anything, who are unsure about what they're seeing, you know, there's just such a culture that's like the don't ask, don't tell. And what I'm saying is ask, tell, do something, even if you're wrong, you know, how do we make it less about that fear of saying something in case we're wrong and more about that curiosity, more about that shifting and shaping, having really difficult conversations with our humans to say, maybe this isn't right. You know, maybe this isn't okay. Not everything needs to be a really draconian punitive, like, you know, charge them and send them out and strip them away. Sometimes it can be about a, this made me feel really uncomfortable. And I really want to have this difficult conversation with you. And just empowering that to say, okay, thank you. I heard you. And how can we do better? Mm-hmm. Because if we could really take that, that approach and start to shift that dialogue, when we are seeing and bearing witness to inappropriate behaviors, it's like, how can we do better? That's ultimately what I'm hoping for, which is, you know, I'm no longer in the calf. I'm no longer, you know, trying to shift that narrative. But I am still wanting to be alongside my fellow you know, service members and saying, you're doing amazing work. How do I cheerlead you now? How do I give you the support and the courage to continue making those changes and to help you do you know, things that I couldn't do? And it's OK. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to do the work behind the scenes now, you know, just being here in our space and with Nomina and trying to help encourage, provide that support and that change. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Lisa. It's always so nice to see you. And I'm sure we'll be talking again very soon. Absolutely. 